Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 9. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. The son asks for bread from any father among you. Will he give you a stone? Or will, if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others, testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. And he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest and finding none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. And it happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. But he said, More than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, This is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up in the judgment with men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. May God add his blessing to that reading of his word. Let us pray. Our great Heavenly Father, we come, Lord, to your word. And we know that some parts of it are very clear, much clearer than others. We know, Lord, that the whole word of God is given for our help and our blessing and our teaching. And so, Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to receive that which may not immediately be clear to us, but we pray you would make it through the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
This morning we carry on with the second part of Jesus' answer to what was said in verse 14 in Luke chapter 11. He was casting out a demon and it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others, testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. So some of them, probably the scribes and or the Pharisees, or couldn't have been the Sadducees, they didn't really believe in the supernatural much at all or any idea of, of angels or demons. Probably the scribes or the Pharisees, they said, he cast out demons only by Beelzebub. In other words, he's in league with the devil, with Satan himself. And you shouldn't believe him. Well, others, while not quite as overtly blasphemous, demanded some sort of sign from heaven before they would believe that all that he had already done was not sufficient, that the sign that God had already given to that adulterous generation, that wicked generation that refused to believe that which was so plainly before their eyes was not sufficient, but they demanded something more. And indeed, the very sign that had been given to them was a thing that they disbelieved. Well, what can we say to that? In the middle of that, we have this man who had recently had a demon removed from him, standing there as those around him argued, perhaps wondering which way to go, which side to believe. Think about that. This man, this man who had the mute spirit, he used to have a demon that dominated his life entirely, and that demon was now gone. Now what? what? What is he supposed to do now? What is the next step that he's going to take? Well, the obvious and simple and straightforward thing would be for him to simply believe in Jesus, the stronger man who had come and over, overwhelmed that demon and thrown him out. Surely he should enthrone him as Lord in his heart and life. Surely he should embrace Jesus in faith. But there are these others who are saying, don't believe in Jesus. He can't be trusted He's just as bad. He's in league with Satan. We're not going to believe him ourselves until he provide, until there's some greater sign from heaven. Well, maybe he thinks then. Maybe he thinks that there is some option then of carrying on without Jesus. That he, can, he doesn't have to be a tool of the devil, but he doesn't have to be a follower of Jesus either. He doesn't really have to make up his mind. But Jesus wants to disabuse him of that. Jesus wants him to know that he is fooling himself because that situation will not remain. There is no such option as remaining forever undecided, undetermined in these things of religion. He must make a decision. The most immediate context of that section is the section we're dealing with this morning, verses 24 to 26. The most immediate context is, of course, the previous verse, verse 23. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. And in this little section, the next section, three verses, is an explanation of that. You understand, he who is not with me is against me. And he explains the situation of one who has had a demon take uh, exercise from him, but then does not embrace Christ. And what happens then afterwards? In the end, the situation is worse. Now, of course, the situation that Jesus is speaking of most directly involved full-on demon possession. But I don't think that that's the only application that is before us today. I don't think that is the only way that the Word of God applies to us. 
Inasmuch as a whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, and it does. Inasmuch as the soul of every sinner is a palace of the evil one, and it is, then the principle applies very broadly, doesn't it? And in particular, and most specifically, it applies to those who have cleaned up their life because they've come in contact with Christ, they've come in contact with Christian things, or maybe in the church, maybe have grown up in the church. But they've come in contact with these things and their lives have been cleaned up because of them. They're in better situation. They are not suffering the worst effects of sin. Their situation is not quite as dire as someone who is out there in the world and given over entirely to sin. But instead of using that opportunity then to embrace Christ in faith, they remain in their own minds neutral. And their situation, brothers and sisters, their situation will be worse than had they never come into contact with Christ at all. Their last state is worse. That's the title this morning. The last state is worse. And just three straightforward points. The first one, contact with Christ disperses the darkness. Contact with Christ disperses the darkness. Second, something must fill the void. And third, either Christ or the darkness is worse. Either Christ or the darkness is worse. So we begin with the first point. Contact with Christ disperses the darkness. He says in verse 24, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finding none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Now just a note here that the idea on the note on the idea that the dispossessed demon is seeking rest, we know that ultimately rest is precisely the thing that will be kept and denied every one of his kind. We know in Revelation fourteen and eleven the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image. And we know in more general terms from Isaiah 57.20, But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says the, my God, for the wicked. But for the present, their one source of rest, their one respite, it seems to be to possess unsaved people. And anyhow, in the providence of God, providence of God Jesus has cast this demon out. You know, in verse 14, he was casting out a demon and it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke and the multitudes marveled. And here we have then this wonderful benefit that the demon had been cast out and the mute man was able to speak. The benefit for this man was very obvious. It's very plain, isn't it, that coming into Christ does have obvious and immediate beneficial effects on those who come into contact with him. He has encountered Christ The demon has to go, it's gone, now he can speak. Very simple. But just because the demon is cast out, that does not mean that the person automatically became a believer and was saved. It was certainly a beautiful illustration of salvation. And I think more than than often, the the two things actually did go together. The physical and and the final and spiritual salvation. We certainly have the example of that Gadarene demoniac in 
in Mark, we have Mary Magdalene in, in Luke chapter 8, uh, certain women of whom had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and so forth. But it was not automatic. And Jesus is contemplating the possibility that this man, or those like him, would listen to the false teachers and not believe in Jesus. Here's the man before that had had the, the demon cast out. He's able to, to be in his right mind. He's able to talk. And he's hearing immediately the voices of those who are saying, don't believe in him. Well, what do we, what do we say? Then we have this statement here in verse 25. And when he comes, speaking of the demon returning, when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. We've said that coming into Christ has had most immediate the effect here of the demon having to go. But I think what it means in broad terms that contact with Jesus has the net effect of cleaning up someone's life. It's swept and put in order. You know, people wonder why it is that our, our worship is what they would say stayed and, and reserved. You know why? Because our God is a God of order. Where do you want to go to find chaos? Go to where the demons are if you want to find chaos. But our God is a God of order. And our order, therefore, is reflected in our lives, isn't it? We have orderly lives swept and put in order. Well, anyways, so it was with this man. His, his life has been put into some kind of order. And is that possible for someone who's not a believer? Absolutely. Don't deceive yourself. Understand that it is absolutely possible for someone who's not really saved. There's a situation of Herod in Mark 6.20. Herod feared God, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. What does that mean? He did many things and heard him gladly. It means that he actually cleaned up his life to some extent. But what was the final situation of Herod? Was it someone who actually believed in Christ's salvation? Certainly not. Soon enough, he would murder the man whose very purpose in life was to bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not put his faith in that man. And rather, of course, we know that he raised his voice against the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is not that. It is not that. All that to say that coming into contact with Christ, then at that point personally, and now through his word and spirit that we encounter in God's church, it may well disperse the darkness that is in someone's life. And we should not be surprised when we see that happening. There will be benefits to being around the church. There will be benefits to hearing the word of God that are not precisely salvation. We know, like in Mark 4.16, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. They saw a great light, and surely there was some light that came to them. That doesn't mean necessarily that they believed in that light. Unfortunately, we know in John 1.5, in the prologue to John's gospel, that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. But even though he was shining so brightly in the darkness of that time, there were but few who really put their faith in him. Well, all that to say the most basic point here, all Jesus, I think, is saying to us most basically is that coming into contact with Christ will surely have a beneficial effect. There will be a cleaning up effect on those who are under the hearing of the word of God. Second point, though, is that something must fill the void. Something must fill the void. 
says, and finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came, verse 25, and when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Now, what do we make from this? Well, we surmise that this is an inviting situation for the forces of darkness. From the situation, again, back in Mark chapter 6, we know that living in, that demons consider living in pigs to be a better situation than being sent forever to the abyss. But they would much rather live in people if they had their choice. And of people, why would they not prefer to live in someone um, who has his life relatively cleaned up? Well, we say, well, surely they were living in this gathering demoniac who was screeching and screaming and cutting himself on the rocks and all the rest of these things. That was no clean house, was it? It was a terrible, chaotic, ugly sort of house. But you see, that's the way they were keeping their house. That doesn't mean that those demons didn't want someone else's house that was nice. That's the way they kept their house. But if there was a, a, a house that was open and ready for them, that was all clean and nice, maybe they would prefer to go there. So it's an inviting situation, apparently, for the forces of darkness. But what makes it an eligible situation for them at all is simply the fact that there's no spiritual occupant in the house. The man, again, as I say, who has, uh, was demon-possessed, he's gotten rid of that demon temporarily, but he's not yet put his faith in Christ. And what Jesus is saying, that this is a dangerous situation. Something must fill this void. Jesus, by the way, I think is taking the threat of those false teachers very seriously. And I think that all good shepherds will do the same. He's not just saying, ah, whatever. These, these people are saying these, these false things about me. But I'm sure that no one's going to actually listen to them. He takes it with the utmost seriousness. That's what most of this chapter is about in one way or another. And here he is warning this man in no uncertain terms and all those around him who likewise have come into Christ and likewise to some extent have benefited from the light. You're in a terribly dangerous situation. You have, you have some benefit before you. But if you do not now put your faith in Christ, the situation will be worse. Why? Because something is going to fill the spiritual void. There is going to be some occupant of your spiritual house soon enough. There's no carrying on in the neutral situation. There's no such thing as not being under the power of the devil anymore, but also not a follower of Jesus. There's no option. He who is not with me is against me, and who does not gather with me scatters. Now, obviously, there are some people where it's more obvious and there are more direct and particular effects that they're under, that they're, they belong entirely to Satan. They give themselves over, and all the effects of it are very visible and, and obvious. But that doesn't mean that everyone who has a cleaned up life is a Christian. Rather, something is filling the void, and Jesus is making it clear to us it's either Him or it's the devil. Well, that's our third. And final point, we say, again, these are not not earth-shattering points, are they? That contact with Christ will surely have some effect. It will disperse the darkness. There is then a void, a dangerous situation where something must fill the void. And thirdly, we know that it's either going to be Christ or else the darkness is actually going to be worse. Now, of course, the possibility that, that, that there might be faith in Jesus is not explicitly mentioned yet. It's very obvious, of course. That was the whole point of his preaching the gospel. Wherever he went, he preached the gospel. 
He didn't just cast out demons. He didn't just do good things for them. He preached the gospel. And what he's saying is that it is not inevitable that this house that, that um, has now been left empty is not inevitable that Christ will fill it, but it is inevitable that something will fill it. The strong man, you see, the stronger man, Jesus Christ, he had rescued one of the captives. Isn't that great? He had come and he had overcome that demon. The demon was powerless. He was beaten up. He was bound. He was thrown out. And then what? Then what happens next? What should have happened? What should have happened is that the stronger man should have been installed as lord of that house. It was his by, by conquest, if not by right. Of course, it was both of those things. He's the creator. He's the redeemer. And he had con- he'd conquered and cleaned out that house and he should have been installed as the lord of it. And unfortunately, that's not what happened. In this situation that Jesus envisions... Actually, in the absence of Christ, and the things are worse. In verse 26, then he goes, this demon he goes, he takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. Now notice, by the way, that, all, that just like the fact that all men are sinners, some sinners are worse than others, so it is apparently that some demons are worse than others. What a, what a thought. But he, he takes these ones more wicked than himself, and they enter, and all of them enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Now, again, we need not be bogged down by the details of the specific workings of the spiritual world. But, I mean, upon other things, we should just grasp how comfortable and forthright Jesus is with that whole that concept. He's not a Sadducee. He's very, very forthright at the existence of these fallen angels that we call demons, these servants of Satan that oppose himself against the Lord Jesus Christ and and seek to work for our spiritual ruin. Well, the point here, though, is very clear. That the last state of that man is worse than the first. This man, who had a demon expelled from him, now you say, how could the estate possibly be worse than that? Here's a man who's mute. Here's a man who can't speak. Here's a man who's inhabited by a demon. Yet Jesus contemplates the possibility that there could be a situation that would be even worse, resulting from the fact that his situation was temporarily better. Not crazy. If he does not fill that void with Christ, it may well be, in fact, it is certain that his situation will be, be worse than the first. The spiritual house, you see, was left empty, and something's going to fill it. Well, again, we, we, I, I want to just clear this particularly up. You say, what about the man himself? Can't he fill it? Can't he fill the space of um, this, this darkness? Can't he himself take control of his own soul? Well, secular humanists would like us to, to think that. You know, there's that poem, you know, the master of my own fate, the captain of my soul, Well, I want us to understand that that's not the case, okay? We're not designed to be masters spiritually, okay? Some of us maybe have authority over others, rightly so. God has designed that to be. But as far as being spiritual masters of our own soul, not a single one of us is up to that task. And not a single one of us can achieve it. God did not design us to do that. He designed us to be worshipers of the living God. And we will worship some object, We will worship some God, whether the true God or the false one. 
And so we spend our entire lives either in the service of Satan one way or another or else in the service of God. But we cannot be our own spiritual masters. We are just sheep. We'll follow some shepherd, true or false. And so the spiritual house left empty will be immediately filled by something. And what John what Jesus says in John twelve thirty five is very relevant here. A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Because that was the situation of this man. That in the supreme irony, his situation of having been been cleaned out will in the end result in things being worse. Now we have to consider how that is, and we'll do so as we move to application. We'll consider how it is that somebody could actually be spiritually worse for having come into contact with Christ. Well, in our application section, then, we have a series of three don't forgets. The first don't forget is don't forget to trust in Christ. Because there are indeed great benefits to cleaning up your life. We have to understand, again, that there are benefits to coming under the preaching of the word of God that are not quite the same, not to the fullest extent of actually coming to faith. When you clean up your life, what is that except that you're now living in accordance with God's law? Well, that's called the first use of the law. You know, there's three of them, right? We focus on the second use of the law, which is to bring us to to faith, to say we can't do it on our own. We have to put our faith in Christ. And then, of course, the third use of the law, which is for believers. But, you know, there's another use of the law, the first one, which is just to, to make the world a better place. Just for people would be less sinful than they otherwise would because the word of God is out there in the world. The word of God in particular is in the church. The word of God may be in other institutions. And therefore, things are less bad than they would otherwise be. There will certainly be short-term benefits to cleaning up your life. The benefits in this life. Absolutely. The, the blessing is, is absolutely without qualification that those who live in accordance with God's law to a greater extent will be blessed ordinarily to a greater extent in this life. But there are also great dangers that come along with it. It is a vulnerable situation. Because your situation, if you come into contact with Christ, if you come into the church and if you live under the hearing of the word, there's a danger because your situation is far more dangerous than if you'd never have contact with Christ and his word at all. Again, how is that? How is that? Well, there's a couple of ways. For one thing, you see, in this situation of great darkness and great extremity, you're very likely to embrace Christ, Right? So the situation of someone who is hopeless and helpless, the situation of someone who is down and out, the situation of someone who has experienced for himself all the terrible effects of sin, they are far more likely then to embrace Christ as Savior. They see their need, they recognize it, it's sharp enough, the pain is sharp enough to do something. It's again like cancer. It's one thing when you have some, some tumor that you can see with the naked eye. Or when you can't even move, you're, you're flat on your back, you understand that you've got to take the harsh medicine, the chemo, and the radiation. It's quite another when you have something that is not even noticeable, has no symptoms. And you may well make the decision to do nothing about such a thing until it's too late. And so it is spiritually. 
the situation of those who have a cleaned up life because they're listening to the word of God may actually be worse for them because they no longer have that. As their life is cleaned up, then they say, well, wait a minute, this has worked well enough for me. I came, or my, my thought was to be in a better situation than I was previously, and now I am in a better situation in this world. Do I really need Christ? Maybe not. You know, and that's, I think, what it says with regard to, uh, you, you notice the rich man. You remember the situation that was given of the rich young ruler in Luke 18.24. Then Jesus saw that, he, be, that uh, he became very sorrowful. He said, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for, the, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And you say, how is that? What is the situation there? This situation is that those who are not conscious of need are unlikely to come to Christ. And so the great irony is it is possible. Now that's materially, that's, that's a different situation. But whether it's materially or morally, those who are not aware of their need are in worse situation than those who are aware of your need. Now there's another way that your situation may be worse. Having heard the gospel over and over, it could be that you become hardened to it. That's another way that your situation may be worse. Because there is a way in which our conscience begins to be seared if we hear the gospel and do not respond to it. Eventually it simply washes over us to no effect whatsoever. And we greatly risk that. And by the way, putting those two things together, the fact that people under the hearing of the word of God clean up their lives and they may become hardened, what will that make you in the end? It will make you a Pharisee. And I think that we have to understand that there is a real danger and risk of those who are under the the hearing of the word of God but do not put their faith in Christ in, in fact, becoming a Pharisee. Because you are living your life a little bit better. You You have cleaned it up. You're different than people around you because of this word. And you begin to think that that's what this religion is about. You begin to think that you deserve some place in the church. You deserve some place in heaven. And that's... What makes you a Pharisee? And I need not tell you that that would be a very, very dangerous and terrible situation. And I would say then that very specifically, those who have come from the world and have cleaned up their lives, and also covenant children who grow up in the church and never actually do experience for themselves, and praise God they don't, the depths of depravity, the terribleness of these sins, the effects of them firsthand. That they're in a dangerous situation until they put Christ and install him as the Lord of their own home. Until they install him in their heart so completely that all danger has passed. Well, I secondly say, so don't forget to put your faith in Christ. Don't forget to trust in him. But secondly, don't forget to engage in spiritual warfare. Because we cannot forget the overtly supernatural nature of what Jesus is saying. The reality is what is said in Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. Against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Sometimes we think that we do. But our problem is spiritual. Our warfare is supernatural. It has to do with things that we cannot see. That is where we are, brothers and sisters. That is the nature of the war that was begun back in the Garden of Eden, and it remains that way. 
And so behind all the actual physical manifestations, behind the things that actually happen, we know that there are spiritual causes. And therefore, the application of that is to engage and remain engaged in spiritual warfare all of our lives. Do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do wrestle against principalities and powers. There are spiritual forces of darkness, and we should fight against them. How do we do so? Well, we have the whole armor of God, the the panoply of God that is given to us in Ephesians 6. And sometimes I feel like we should make little cards or even brass plaques and hand it out to everyone. You know, there's there's the, the bold face. And I've, I've used this illustration before. And each and every last brief that we, that we ever did in the air warfare community, in, in the military, there was always the bold face of what was going to happen if there was some emergency. And the bold face was repeated over and over and over again so that when things were going wrong, dive, uh, what is it? Dive recovery not initiated, passing 3,000 feet eject. Dive recovery not initiated, passing 3,000 feet eject. Because when things are going wrong, you need to have something sitting in your head that will prompt you to do the right thing. Because sadly, brothers and sisters, by the time we recognize the need to engage in spiritual warfare, it's often already too late. We've already been overtaken by various things. And so I'd say my brief this morning to you is to engage in spiritual warfare. Put on the whole armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God. Don't forget to engage in spiritual warfare. Third, don't forget that Christ is a stronger man. Because if you're thinking that you're doing all this on your own strength, now you've really got it wrong. That is not the point of this. That is exactly the opposite of the point of this. Christ is a stronger man. That is the wonderful gospel of this. The gospel is that he has come to set us free. The gospel is that he has come to do it all himself. You say you're weak. You say you might fall away of your own accord. You're right. You're absolutely right. So stop trying to do it on yourself. Stop trying to be the the master of your own house in that way. Put Christ there in that place. Put Christ there that he might reign. Put your faith in him. Don't forget he's a stronger man. Jesus says in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. The point of this is not to make you afraid in some some unhelpful way. If you're trusting in Christ, that is it. You are, you are in perfect situation. If you're trusting in Christ moment by moment, that is what the point is. No one's able to snatch you out of the Father's hand. Don't forget that Christ is a stronger man. Now, fourthly, I've said that there are three don't forgets, but I want to say also one final application, which is, to warn against the idea of transforming the culture to death. And that's what I'm saying here has to do with the mission of the church. Because all of this is the idea, this tells us, explains for us, if nothing else does, why the idea of the social gospel apart from actual conversion is dangerous. Do you understand what I'm saying there? Sometimes people have a great wonderment. Why is it that that places in, in in Africa and places in South America that perhaps the, the gospels never reached 
We, you know, of course, we have the example of Fiji, even of, of a family among us. And great numbers, great numbers of people embrace the gospel. And how is it that there are so few here? How is it that they're, they're just a tiny, tiny, tiny minority? How is that? I have a theory. What do you think? Why is it that this land is so hardened to the gospel? Is it not a sense? Is there not a sense in which this, the gospel and, pre- and previous generations had swept things clean? In which, in fact, the, the effects of sin are not so readily apparent as in some other lands. And our need is not so acute. But that our coming into contact with Christ has actually hardened us as a people. Now, I know it could have happened despite the church's best intention. Jesus is speaking of someone right in front of his face. And he's saying, please, don't, don't mistake me. Don't just use this opportunity then to have a cleaned out life without embracing me in faith. So I'm not, I'm not, I don't have anything to say with regard to the church has done everything in its power to do it right and to preach salvation, to preach Christ. But I'm not entirely sure that that's exactly what happened in the Victorian church. I'm not entirely certain that's exactly what happened in the early 20th century church. I think that, in fact, they were preaching the social gospel. They were trying to make the world a better place without preaching Christ, without preaching conversion. And they succeeded, brothers. They succeeded. They made the world a better place. They swept out the home a little bit. But because the church was not also being faithful to the gospel of preaching conversion, preaching Christ to salvation, there is also a sense, I believe, in which they made it worse. That they would harden things for the generations to come. We were just saying, weren't we? We were just pointing to Luke 18. How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? What would happen, by the way, if the liberal church actually succeeded in doing what it wants to do and transform the culture? What if it made everyone perfectly rich and perfectly healthy and perfectly wealthy and everything was absolutely wonderful? What would happen then? And if they did not preach Christ, they did not preach conversion, do you know what happened? They will have just made it harder for those to believe. If you believe just what Jesus said, they will have had the unintended effect of making things harder. Well, we need not go there. This is all a contemplation, a contemplation of things if they don't do what is right. Things that would happen if you don't do what is natural, which is to put your faith in Christ. So all these things are not necessary. All the church needs to do is to preach Christ, the gospel that you believe in him and you'll be saved. And we know that the Lord is able then to sort out all that comes thereafter. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we've recognized, Lord, the enormous amount of pitfalls in in everything that we do as your people. But Lord, help us at least to see our greatest dangers. And Lord, we pray particularly for those who are unconverted, who are yet under the sound of the gospel. And Lord, we pray both for covenant children and for those from outside, we ask, Lord, that they would put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, so they would recognize the dangerous moment that they're in. And Lord, all would be for naught. Indeed, it would be for worse were they to have a cleaned out life 
and not also to put their faith in Christ. Lord, we do pray that all the voices of those who would say, don't believe in Jesus, you can't trust him, would be put aside. And all the influence of darkness and the evil one would be eliminated. But rather, Lord, the one voice of Jesus Christ speaking through his word and spirit would come across loud and clear and that we would all embrace him as Savior and Lord. We pray this in his name. Amen.